0: welcome to 101 part-time jobs the show where i speak to bands about what they get up to other than the thing that we know them for i've got amos pitch from tenement with us today obviously this isn't tenement behind it it's r boyd but the reason why it's behind it is because amos and his friends founded a recording studio and record label crutch of memory where they're from in appleton wisconsin and our boyd's full length high country skyway came out earlier this year on crutch of memory recorded at crutch of memory amos plays a bunch of instruments on it we're going to find out what's up with tenement we're going to find out how he does things, how he got into engineering records and, and producing albums. Meanwhile, keeping that creative side. He talks about how the, how the label and the, the studio look towards Stacks and Motown as influences. And he tells me a couple of really great stories, including one hitchhiking down to Florida to see Ted Leo, his ID not working on the door. And then, well, he'll tell you that. It's coming up. Thank you so much for listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs. If you can share it, if you can tell your friends about it, that would be amazing. I want to keep on doing these chats. I want to keep on doing these episodes. And it's amazing to, to share them, you know, especially especially in a time like now. So thank you so much. East London Signature Brew have been brewing music-inspired music music, music inspired beers since 2011. If you go onto their website, signaturebrew.co.uk, you can get 10% off all your orders there by using the voucher code 101podcast. That's UK only. All right, go well. This is Amos Pitch from Tenement, Dusk and a whole lot of other bands, as well as the producer, engineer and general housebody at Crutch of Memory. Go well. Cheers. Even when there's a at the wheel. Sweet. I mean, thanks so much for, for chatting to me. Being a you know long time listener of Tenement, and I mean you've got something to do with the production, right?
1: Right. Uh, we have a studio here in Appleton that I'm actually recording this at. It's called Crutch of Memory, and uh, it's it's kind of operated out of our house. It's like a it's a little brick building that kind of juts out the front of our house, and we record most of our albums here.
0: Wait, which of your records did you do that?
1: Uh, well, we've done. Let me think here. Uh, basically everything. After predatory headlights that we've recorded was done here. Before uh we lived here, we also lived in like this kind of ridiculous punk house and we recorded a lot there, but then we set up this like legitimate studio here and we've recorded like the the tenement self-titled album was recorded here and so was like the dusk album and
0: and a lot of your solo stuff as well.
1: Right, everything everything that I do solo is recorded here. Um yeah.
0: Is that, is, did you kind of teach yourself production? How did you...
1: Yeah, you know, uh, the guy who recorded Tenement's Napalm Dream album and, and Predatory Headlights was kind of, uh, I looked up to him a lot when I was younger and he recorded a lot. And, um, you know, I asked him how he learned to record and basically it's like he... <laughs> he taught himself and most people do teach themselves you know and so it's like i just started accumulating equipment and kind of looking at what he used and what other people use that i looked up to and just started teaching myself and you know i made a lot of mistakes along the way and i still do but you know uh
0: it seems similar to being in a band that the, the few people that i know that do production stuff is i mean that just kind of caught my ear when you said you know you accumulate gear i mean it's not cheap gear right <laughs>
1: right yeah it's, a, it's pretty expensive <laughs> we actually just made a like fourteen thousand dollar upgrade to the studio and wow it's, it's pretty bizarre the amount of money you spend to just get like a like a very marginal amount better sounding equipment you know
0: yeah did you did you start off by getting something that was just affordable and then you kind of kept on upgrading
1: right i had a uh I bought this little digital, well, actually, you know, when I first started recording, I was in like maybe a, a, a freshman in high school and uh, I bought this little Zoom four-track uh, digital recorder. I guess it goes back far, further than that, but that's as fur, far back as like I can remember like actually investing in a piece of equipment. Like before that, it was like I used whatever little tape players were around or whatever, but, you know, in in high school, I bought this little Zoom four-track digital recorder and uh kind of learned how to use microphones and learn how like like what was intuitive for me and uh you know and and it kind of you know as the years went on you start kind of developing a more professional approach and understanding you know why you're not supposed to distort certain things you know whatever
0: I never got into recording, but when I was younger, getting starting in bands and just being really into it, the idea of getting a four track had such an amazing aesthetic to me.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I, I do remember when I was really young, just kind of, you're setting this four track up and running all these cables everywhere. And it, it was just kind of in a big pile on the floor and there'd be all these, you know, like lights flashing and, and, you know, just like cables hung everywhere. And it was really, it was like a... I don't know, especially when you're that young and you don't really experience uh, anything out of your little bubble of being a child. It felt like this big, you know, professional operation kind of. It felt like
0: you'd use that like equipment as like its own instrument, isn't right?
1: It? Oh, that's definitely true. I mean, you, like even like I have I have this Roland. Uh, it's a it's a eight track digital recorder from the '90s that I still use, and it's and I use it like in spite of like all the really expensive equipment you have we have because it has a sound and if you and if you and if you hit the hit the recorder with sounds a certain way it's gonna and it's gonna have a specific sound just like an instrument would you know
0: what were the kind of bands that you were mostly into then who were you really excited about
1: i don't know because you know i grew up on i grew up listening to like country music and and classic rock my mom was really into classic rock and so she she taught me a lot about that kind of music uh Aerosmith was her favorite band you know and, and stuff like that you know growing up I whatever was whatever was uh, surrounded me and then once I got like into high school maybe you know I, I learned about the Ramones and the Descendants and Black Flag and and punk bands and stuff like that so it's at that point where you've got like a little zoom recorder and you're just like pushing all the inputs. So they sound really gnarly. And uh, that became like what I wanted a recording to sound like for a long time. And I, you know, even getting into like when Tenement started to record, I didn't understand why you couldn't always just plug a mic in and turn everything all the way up to like get that sound. You had to like go around about way to make it sound actually listenable.
0: Was it something that you like felt just compelled to do?
1: Uh, yeah early on, I think it was something that I was really um interested in uh just playing around and like making recordings and then uh, eventually, it became a thing where you know tenement wanted to record a lot and and pretty consistently, but we couldn't always just afford to like go to the guy that we recorded with justin and and spend however many dollars an hour to do it, so it became a necessity thing where I was accumulating equipment. So we could always have a way to record professionally.
0: That kind of finance aspect of it, that's kind of like the crux of this podcast and like these interviews. And and like I said, before I pressed record, it, it, you know, I'm just kind of fascinated about that. You know, just kind of like that friction between real life paying rent and then this other thing that costs a lot of money, but you just kind of have to do it. Yeah. Is, is that true with you? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean... Definitely. It's something you're compelled to do a lot. I mean, a lot of people that are, that are doing what we do creatively, you know, at some point in your life early, early on, you're like compelled to be creative. It's a, it's something you, it, it just happens and, and it doesn't really go away. So it's like, you're going to do it whether you have to have a, a, another job or a way to get money in order to do it or not, you know?
0: Yeah. And I wonder if that changes when you get older as well. I mean, as lo- as much as I used to love, when I was eighteen or nineteen, I used to love the idea of never changing, you know. And then, and then you kind of grow. I still, kind, you kind of do, of...
1: you know. I, I still <laughs> really? daydream about, like, you know, I don't, I, not necessarily struggling as I get older, but like, you know, a lot of people either, you know, quit playing music at the at the the you know velocity that they do because it's just too much. You know, as you get older, it's hu- it's hard to handle like working a day job and also doing music on the side. Or, you know, they start y- doing music more commercially and perhaps like losing the grip of their actual creative vision. You know,
0: comparing yourself to people is is like the de- it's like a disease, isn't it? <laughs> but I think I think it's kind of easy to fall into sometimes.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's like I, I watch some of my heroes. You know, just kind of. Fall into and it's not necessarily a bad thing if it's what they love to do, but it it does feel personally in my own eyes it feels a little um a little bit uh a little sad to watch their creative kind of vision fall away into like them forcing to use their talents for a utilitarian purpose like uh you know technical aspects of music, which you know they're a lot of times they're really good at but I think they have a lot to give the world creatively that uh, ultimately like our society is forcing them not to give us, you know,
0: what jobs have you had then along the way? Has it kind of been a mishmash? Have you, have you found yeah. one it?
1: I mean, yeah, it's kind of, I don't know. It's, it's like anyone else, you know, and the other guys in tenement too, it's like they, they've worked uh, you know, Eric was a, our drummer, Eric, he, uh, worked at a tofu factory and he built like snowplow
0: <laughs>
1: nice. plows and he built like, or er, he, uh, moved futons, you know, and, yeah. and it's like Jesse, it's a pizza delivery guy for years and years. And years. some of my, some of my, some of the absolute like ultimate geniuses in, in my opinion of the musical world have been pizza delivery guys, you know? And it's just like, they do that for years and years and years. And, um, he did that all the while playing in the band, while also um, going toward a chemistry chemistry degree, which he is still pursuing in Finland right now. Oh wow, he's in Finland. Yeah,
0: cool. How, how does the how's the band been working?
1: Ah, uh, well, it hasn't. It's been a, a, on a bit of a hiatus the past couple of years. Just yeah, like I don't know, in the absence of Jesse, really. So that's kind of why. Uh, you know, our the studio that I've been working on and my other group, Dusk, that's why that all started to take off a few years ago. And like, I've been kind of like focusing on that in the meantime until we can get, until, you know, you know, it's just kind of a take and give, like, you know, Tenement will kind of pick up at some point and then, you know, it'll probably lull again and Dusk will pick up and whatever. I like that. D4
0: comes to mind with that. You know, oh. they'll maybe not release a record for seven years and right. then they'll release something that's like, just the best
1: yeah you know lane the drummer is a is a scientist you know so it's like oh, wow. he, he actually has like a he's actually has like a very like serious like scientific profession that and that's kind of the reason why dillinger four has a has like uh they can't really just play all the time you know
0: i wonder if that makes him and makes that band gives it that element where it's they're definitely doing it for fun you know, and I wonder <laughs> yeah. if you write better music because of that
1: oh well, I don't know I don't know if i would i, would, I don't know if I go th- that far but i would <laughs> i would say that it does get it probably gives it some element of uh you know authenticity as far as like a bunch of guys that you know are really clever and great songwriters and also don't give a shit but have have you found
0: doing you know producing records and and making records what have you kind of seen about your own songwriting have you have you found it easier to to crack out you know the great ones because you know when you write a good song i mean you know it inside
1: i, I mean i feel like i know it a lot of the times and then uh, you know a year or two down the road i realized it wasn't as great as i thought it was but
0: working on the technical side of it on on the production side of it have you seen that affects the way that you're writing
1: oh definitely definitely yeah i mean I, the way I, I start, the way I write music definitely changed once I started really, uh, getting into the recording side of things. Before that, it was like, you know, I, basically when, when I wrote the songs for Napalm Dream, the Tenement LP, uh, I wrote most of the songs on an acoustic guitar and just memorized them, you know, and, and, and you can definitely tell between that album and the next album that I had started really, like, recording everything i did you know and basically using the studio as a as a tool in the songwriting process where things started to become more of a collage of sound and like they became more of like a bigger like sonic concept than than the songs on napalm dream which are basic you know just guitars bass and drums and uh just like cranking out power chords which i think is can be very cool but it it just my my whole like take on how I how I wrote started changing at a s- certain point because of recording. You can you can
0: hear that in that that just explorative right. kind it, of kind of sense. I
1: mean, it took a lot of years to make that album, and a lot of it was because we were just tinkering around, like in our house, using you know, just like recording things and re-recording them and re-recording and re-recording, rewriting them as we record them. And, and also, you know, using the house as, as an instrument and, and just, I don't know, it was a very, it's, it's sometimes, you know, I, I listened to that album for the first time again in in several years recently. And I was like, I don't know if I could listen to this as an objective listener, as a s- objective listener, like just coming to it, you know, i don't know it's just like kind of there's a lot going on i don't know
0: (laughs) i think for a lot of people that's what makes it so great you know it's got it's got this sort of ted leo (laughs) side of it i don't know if you're into ted leo
1: oh man that that's funny like when i was 16 i i uh i I hitched a ride down to florida for that festival the fest yeah and, yeah. uh, and i went down there just to see ted leo and uh, a friend of mine gave me a, a uh, his ID f- to get into the Ted Leo show. Cause I was way underage. I couldn't get into any of the shows, but I went down there. I'm like, I'm going to go see Ted Leo. So I get this fake ID and, and it doesn't look like me at all. And of course they, they kicked me out and I'm sitting behind the venue, just like bumming out. Cause I just went, you know, how many, I don't know how many miles it is from Wisconsin to Florida, but it must be a couple thousand. And I, and you know, I came down there all the way to see him and, and he just happens to walk around the corner and, and, uh, to use the bathroom on the outside of the building or something. So I kind of like sheepishly wandered up to him and I was just like, you know, you're, I came all the way down here from Wisconsin to see you. And you're like, you know, a big hero of mine and all this stuff. And I, I got kicked out cause I'm, I'm like underage and whatever. And he's just like, well, just wait here and, uh, just wait here and, uh, and I'll figure something out. So he goes away for like two hours and
0: Two hours is a long time.
1: Yeah, I'm sitting on this rock not knowing what's going to happen, but I'm like, well, if I don't, you know, there's no chance of me getting in if I don't sit here. So I just sat there and um, and uh, and all of a sudden out of nowhere, some, someone just belligerent person comes stumbling around the corner. And I was like, and I turn around and it's Patty from Dillinger 4. And this is before I ever knew him, how, how we ever knew each other. And he is, he's wasted. And he just comes up to me and puts his arm around my shoulder. And he says, like, says what's your name and I'm like Amos he's like can I buy you a pizza so I'm like sure and so we (laughs) (laughs) so we wander over to this pizza place and we're sitting we're sitting uh outside of this pizza place and people are coming up to Patty just talking how great he is and how great uh Dylan Jafor is and he just keeps going yeah 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 hey have you met my friend Amos have you met my friend Amos and you know forcing (laughs) all these people to say hello to me and um, <laughs> I had never met him before in my life and, uh, he eventually kind of wandered off. And so I went back to that rock and another half an hour passed or so. And Ted Leo comes walking out and he said, just follow me. And he, he, uh, and I follow him to the backstage door of the venue and he, he gives the security guys a look and they step aside and he opens up this door and it just opens right up onto the stage. And I walk up onto the stage and he puts on his guitar and just starts playing. It was like straight out of a movie or something, man. It's like, it was like, I was, I was like riding high for months after that. And like, I, I tried to get a hold of him years after that, just to tell him how important it was. And I never heard back, but like, that was, you know, it was a huge deal to me, like being in high school and being so far from home and like trying to, you know, connect with one of my heroes, you know? massively I, I
0: think going to gigs around england people british people don't understand like how big north america is <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know here if, if if you're gonna go see your you know your, your favorite bands touring and they're not playing in your town it's like four hours yeah <laughs> you know? what was it like i mean that's a good point you know, being underage and and being in bands how did how did you kind of navigate that would you be sneaking in sneaking in to play shows yeah or- did you have to wait?
1: Yeah, cuz I don't know, it, it's like you got to be 21 to get into or to drink and obviously to and to get into most like clubs or bars, so it's like and I've been playing music since I was like, you know, young high schooler, so maybe 14 or 15 and going on tour and whatever and it definitely it, it was a weird thing to navigate and I kind of forget actually how hard it was at this point, but I do remember, like the you know the first like professional, real professional music gig I ever got was straight out of high school. This band that I, one of my high school bands played with while I was in high school, lost their drummer in the middle of a tour, and like got a hold of me and asked if I would do like a three month tour with them, and, and I said yes. And, wow. And I just remember they were much older than me. It was like this kind of uh, middle aged married couple, and uh, from L.A. And what were they called? they were called Bang Sugar Bang. They were kind of, kind of like X. They kind of sounded like X or something. And, uh, you know, I was young and in awe of the world and I just wanted to see everything. So I said, of course. And I went on tour with this, this, uh, couple and, uh you know, I would, I would encounter a lot of nights where I had to sit outside the bar, you know, all night until we, the moment we played and then, you know, come in, play the set and leave. So I would spend a lot of time just wandering around cities waiting to play, you know, as a young kid. <laughs> that's got that's got to be kind of lonely. Yeah, it was kind of lonely, but at the same time, like, everything was brand new. I mean, now I'd be like, fuck this shit, man. Like, I've seen so much of everything look the same in America to me. Every city looks the same to me almost, you know, and it's like, back then it was just like, you know, I was I was from a smaller town in Appleton and and like just being in a city where there's you know more than 15 stories on a building is was awe-inspiring to me kind of so it was just like wandering around these downtown areas and stuff in these cities and like waiting to play going in playing for you know an hour or something and then <laughs> and then uh having to stand outside again it was it was weird but you know so when you got
0: home from that tour did that did that change anything for you did it make it like Seemed like a reality, you know, a, an actual kind of thing that was in your reach. To
1: The thing with that tour, though, is was, uh, the guitarist fell down a flight of stairs in Hollywood and, and broke his arm in like a million places. And uh, so I ended up having to take a uh, train back home from from the coast. And it, did, it, it, it basically the tour is over within a month. And when I got home, the band that I had been really like focusing on in high school had was just about to break up. So we broke up like right after that and everything was kind of strange and discouraging. And that's about the time I started Tenement, which was the fall of 2006.
0: Right. And when, when was the first Tenement released then?
1: The first time I released like a f- actual release that a record label did for us was in 2009. I think uh, a label from Minnesota put out a sing or an EP called the false teeth EP and a label from lacrosse put out a single called Ice Pick and they and they were both part of the same recording session um that we had done at a university with our friend Tyler Ditter who plays in Dusk with me now. Um and that was the
0: first tenement recorded songs.
1: Right. And well I mean I we had made demos before that for sure. Uh but I don't even know what happened to those by now. We i I don't know, you know, and and songs I don't even remember what those songs sounded like. They probably sounded a lot like Dillinger four or something because I think we were like really into like you know, thrash metal and like the descendants and, you know, we just wanted to play fast, aggressive, melodic music, which is kind of different than what we turned out to be known for to a degree. Like, you know, but
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Did that kind of spark something in you when when a label put it out or were you,
1: you know, from the get go, we were trying really hard to get uh, interest from record labels to release our music which wasn't very easy because we live quite a ways away from any sort of bigger cities that have, you know, any sort of like uh, media centers or anything like that. You know, we live far away from, from where the action is. And so from the, from the start of Tenement, like we toured a lot and uh, it really became more of a thing where like the band was our lifestyle and, whether people liked us or not, it didn't matter. And the art that we made was, was basically our own. And we were going to do whatever the hell we we wanted to do. And we never really like, we never really like subscribed to a scene per se. Like, Mm. I don't know, you know, when you, I know, I know what you mean. When you go to a festival called the, or like the fest or something. And like a lot of the bands kind of have their, their, same thing going on and they're all buddies and stuff, which is cool. We were never, we kind of mingled with those scenes. We never really were a part of them. And uh, so it was like, you know, labels wanting to put out our music, like it was cool, but it wasn't really what it was all about for us. Um,
0: When you said you sort of started off like aiming for that, did you kind of realize quite quickly that that wasn't going to make you feel good?
1: um, Well, it was basically like, we just wanted to, we wanted people to listen to us. And it's very hard living in Appleton, Wisconsin, to get people outside of Appleton, Wisconsin, to listen to you, you know? And so you're trying to navigate, like, how do I get people to listen to me? And, you know... uh, Because even if you know, even if
0: you're not trying to, like, (laughs) you know that you're not going to make loads of money, but then there's also the fact where you're like, well, if enough people like it, then we can continue doing, doing it
1: yeah well yeah exactly and and for the first like maybe four you know three or four years we were a band like consistently we we'd just send out tapes and cds you know that we'd make ourselves to people and magazines and websites and everything we we spent so much money just sending out that while at the same time touring throughout a lot of the year and and um yeah, I don't know. For the first, like, few years we were a band, we would tour quite a bit, and we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't have a record to sell. We would make, we would hand make, like, tapes, and we would sell out of them within the first week or two of the tour, and then basically have nothing to sell and be making very little money, and... Uh, <laughs> Is that because you
0: were under pressing the tapes, under printing the tapes? Or? Yeah,
1: well, definitely because we, we could only do so much because we were we we didn't have like a multi duplicator, so we were making these things with just a regular tape deck, and we were making the covers by hand too. So it's like everything, and we'd make as much as we could before we left, and then uh, you know it would it would sell out, and and uh, you know we wouldn't have any, and people <laughs> complained about it all the time that we didn't have a. Uh, you know, we didn't have um, anything to sell, really. I mean, we, we've we been printing our own shirts, like, since the beginning. And we it got to the point where it was just, like, we would run out of records or, or tapes or whatever to sell so early on that, like, we needed a way to keep making money. So we would bring along the screens uh, for our T-shirts on tour, and we would ask the people we were staying with every night if we could use their house, you know, their living room, to print T-shirts. And we would spend... You know, we would sit up all night after a show and uh, we would sit in these people's living room and we would print, you know, 50 to 100 T-shirts that would make us through the next couple of days. And then we'd wake up like, you know, two or three hours later and drive eight or 10 hours to the next show and do the same thing <laughs> over again, you know.
0: You have to use the... Um the the drying machine don't you sometimes to keep get that ink (laughs) yeah yeah
1: yeah for sure uh
0: give them a few few couple of dollars for the energy
1: (laughs) yeah At least personally, I was kind of, you know, just focused on music. And it's always, it's always kind of been my focus. I knew when I was really young that I didn't really want to go to school for anything. I wanted to pursue music um, in some on my own terms in some form, you know, when I was really young, I kind of looked at like, well, if I got to go to school, I guess I'm going to, I want to be in a marching band or something. But at a certain point I realized that's not what I want to do. It's not going to make me happy. And uh, I, I, and I've always been really sure of my own ambitions and really sure of like uh, in the end, my own decisions. So, you know, I've always just been focused on my own creative pursuits and anything else kind of takes a back seat. You know,
0: has that kind of got you into trouble ever? Has that kind of,
1: oh, you know, its right. own
0: adversities? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, I've been poor basically my whole life, you know, it's like I, I didn't I didn't grow up into wealth and I also never really attained it yet. And it's of course, it, it, it definitely is a struggle, you know, but it's a struggle that you accept because you get, you know it's a struggle that you accept because you feel compelled to have to be creative. It's just like, it's a necessity. I don't know. It's a mental necessity really more than anything else
0: is, is where you're living. Is that a place where you can do that or would it, is it easier where you're living financially than if you're living in a, in a city and obviously the rent might be cheaper, but I mean that also, there's less opportunities to work like cash in hand, for example.
1: Yeah. I mean, where we live, uh, rent has always been really cheap, but, um, the house, the house that we lived in for years, it was called the BFG. It was a, it was a punk house around here and we would do, we would do like, you know, sometimes five or six shows a week of nas- international touring bands would come play our house. And it was kind of a big dump, but like, you know, we would pack a bunch of people into this house and I would pay a hundred dollars a month for rent and which is dirt cheap. I mean,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I pay five hundred. Okay, like
0: that—that is the cheapest you find in London. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we had a huge house. You know, it was a giant space. We could do whatever we wanted with it. Like we—we we were pretty—we were pretty free. You know, it felt pretty, pretty good. But it—it it is kind of a give and take because you live up here, and there's just like no immediate, you know people don't just notice you because you went out and played a show in Appleton, Wisconsin. You know, it's like, we were watching friends of ours blow up like on the coast in New York and, and, and so on Philadelphia, you know, that started like after we did and, you know, we had stuck so much more time into touring and, and whatever. And, and, we were still just kind of struggling here. Tenement achieved like a a moderate amount of success, especially considering where we're from. There aren't there aren't many people that get out of Appleton. It's a very difficult thing to do, you know. I just thought of that band
0: Disc with a Q. I've been quite enjoying their record, and they've been getting a lot of press. I'm sure, like in, in England, they've been getting sort of the equivalent of like the Rolling Stone kind of stuff. Have you heard I, that record? I haven't heard of Disc. No. They're from. Um let me just search this from um,
1: Madison, Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I have been hearing about them a little bit.
0: The album's really, really good. I really like the way it sounds. Okay. Um, it's got a really cool, like acoustic tone kind of throughout. Um, I, acoustic it guitar in it. I mean, you are really in the middle of nowhere. And- yeah.
1: I mean, we always had an option to move somewhere, of course. Uh, and, but the thing is, is that I kind of like being in this kind of, uh, I like this kind of environment cuz you're isolated a bit you you don't you're not really influenced by you know trends at large and um and people look at you a little differently it's uh you know your per- like people's perceptions of you are are a little different like cuz you're a bit of an outsider and and I think we've always kind of had that reputation
0: is there is there friction between you and you know other other people that live in your town
1: is it like a weird thing to do what you're doing and in- <sighs> Uh, no, I mean, we've always kind of done our own thing and I've never really been judgmental of other people doing their own thing either. But, uh, when we were really young in high school, like there was kind of a scene around here that was built around like crust punk and and hardcore and, and they kind of brought us up into, into DIY music and punk. So we learned everything we knew from them and they did a lot of basement shows around here. would bring in bands from all over the place, you know, and, uh. So we kind of generated our own scene out of this house that we were living in, and it became a kind of a notorious thing with people in town and with the police around here, and uh, we got um, kicked out of our house. Um, it started on fire one day, and and uh, the landlord sent someone over to take a look at, at the repair job, and they realized the entire inside of the the uh house was dry rot and uh so they basically were like this thing is like a giant like it's it's like it's made of like match like match boxes you know and so dry rot's
0: really really bad isn't it
1: yeah you know it could just go up in flames so it uh so we got kicked out in the middle of winter it was like it was it was crazy and and our heat had stopped working the month before we got kicked out and we didn't have running water for a long time it was just kind of a crazy living situation there but we ended up uh you know kind of like out of desperation just walking around town looking for places to live and a few blocks from where that house was we ended up finding this this building where crutch memory ended up being and at the time it was a it was a uh, vintage barn lights reseller store and it was just this dreamy looking. We walked up to it and there were just like all these old, uh, cool looking old lights just hanging all over inside of the, the room that became our live room in the studio. And we were just staring at it in awe and there was a for rent sign in the front yard, you know. So we called the landlord and, and uh, just thinking it was a long shot and we ended up getting in.
0: Amazing. Yeah. And so how much gear did you have at that point? How much sort of, and and did you have quite an ambitious look on sort of what you wanted to do with it?
1: I mean, yeah. And we still do have, an, like, we're still dreaming big about finding like a bigger space than this, but yeah, at the, at the time we had like a minimal kind of setup. We didn't have a recording console. We had, we basically had like a, a really nice interface and like a bunch of like kind of vintage, uh, mic preamps and compressors and microphones but it was compared to now it was very it was a very small operation you know we built some things ourselves reverb units and and things like that so you
0: say you like we as in like the all of you that live in the house are right. you are you all kind of you can all engineer stuff
1: uh i feel like well at the time when we moved there were a couple other people that played in a band called technical teeth with me um that were also living there and they were very into the engineering and producing side too. So that was kind of what that's about. And, and now it's like, we, everyone kind of dabbles in it, but I think I focus on it the most for sure. We, it was kind of, it was built and designed to be our studio basically to do what we want to do. And, and uh, you know um, we started a record label out of the studio a couple of years ago now, it's we've put out a few records and the studio is basically designed to feed that record label and it's it we're hoping to grow that into like a bigger you know a bigger endeavor so
0: and that's the crutch of memory label right how have you navigated that like looking at distribution and pressing plants
1: we're taking it small at first but uh there is a there is like this uh company in in, uh, wisconsin that does really small pressings of records and they'll do everything The, the the printing and the pressing and everything is done through them and uh we've got a good relationship with them so that's what we've been doing since you can't it's it's really hard to sell vinyl like big amounts of vinyl even even compared to like a you know when we did napalm dream like that that has sold so many copies compared to anything else I've done. And, and I think it, I think it has a lot to do with the, you know, the timing of it, you know, it came out in 2011, which was before Spotify was really a thing. And, and uh, YouTube hadn't really like picked up into the, the monstrosity that it is. And there weren't really a stream, like streaming services weren't, didn't really have the power that they have. And, and when Napalm Dream came out, you know, we went on tour on that and, we sold a lot of copies of that record and it it really felt like something that we could do for you know it could become yeah and uh within a few years that was gone you know it once once streaming once streaming took over people still buy records but it's more of like a you know vanity purchase more than anything you know one of the things that i've always done is uh collect records and I've always been really good at identifying value in records based on, you know, the way they look, the way they sound. There's just, I just have an intuitive sense of like, um, you know, collect collectability of records. So, you know, I have been buying up, we've been buying up through the label, um, Record collections and, you know, going around to like junk stores and people's, you know, in garages and finding their old collections and buying them to resell them to generate both money for myself and for the label. It's kind of, you know, I feel like we're in a time and place where record labels are having to find a different revenue stream other than just selling their music in order to, you know, be sustainable and one you know one of those things is like licensing you know getting your music into movies and stuff like that and like what we're trying to do right now is like kind of like what labels like Stax and motown did in the 60s where they ran a record store out of the front of their studio we're kind of doing we're trying to do that thing kind of online, you know, just, you know, buying up collections and reselling them in order to generate money for the things that we really want to be doing. And also to live off of, especially around here, you can find so many random old people out in the country, you know, in the middle of nowhere with these old record collections, that have been sitting in attics and stuff and they'll sell them, you know, they just don't want them. And, <laughs> you know, it's definitely month by month. I don't know anybody that isn't living month by month. Honestly, honestly, like, I don't know anybody that can save money, especially if they're, you know, an artist. I don't know. I think people are getting conditioned not to really spend money on arts. Uh, Yeah.
0: Well, everything's going for free. Like so many free magazines.
1: Yeah, there's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even like journalism and whatever, it's like, it's all becoming free. People are, 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 you know, conditioned to be able to consume art and for free and, I don't really know how else you're going to get people to, at a certain point to pay for art. You know, I don't, I don't really know. It's a, it's a big question mark really.
0: I mean, does it mean that people who, who grow, whose, whose parents can help them out until they're on their feet at like 35? Does that just mean like more of those people are going to exist?
1: It feels like those, it feels like that's a common thing already and it's, it's confusing about how to solve that you know you hear a lot of rhetoric like these people just need to suck it up and find real work but like musicians and artists didn't always have to do that so i did a tour in 2012 and 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 for a a, you know a few years i was doing a lot of like uh drumming for bands on tour as a way to make income and uh i I did a tour playing drums for a reunion show for that old power pop band the nerves no
0: way uh, seriously
1: yeah they did a reunion tour in 2012 that didn't last very long i kind of imploded in the middle of it but uh peter peter case who was in the nerves and the plimsolls he was basically telling me like you know you don't have to live in la to make a living you just got to figure out you know The best place to live is a place like where you live already, you know, because you don't you don't really have a lot of you don't have a lot of like living expenses necessarily. It's it's pretty low. You just got to find a way to bring that money in and you can live like a king if you want to. And it's just like as the years go on, it's difficult to find that way to bring the money in it's like people are just struggling finding several you know as many revenue streams as they can as a musician and it's still not enough
0: uh yeah i mean they're people selling books on like contacts to get on the spotify playlists and that doesn't actually do (laughs) anything
1: yeah yeah.
0: tell me how did that nerves thing come about because that's amazing
1: uh their their drummer before i was playing drums with I played drums with the Paul Collins beat for a while, too, like a year or two. And uh, before I played drums in that, their drummer, um, Paul Collins was living in Spain, and their drummer in Spain was from Appleton, our hometown. And and uh, he kind of started bringing people from that he knew from this area into the band. And so, like, Paul Collins beat eventually became Paul Collins in, like, a group of wisconsin guys and uh, i was the drummer and so when they started talking about doing a nerves reunion tour i became the the uh consideration for the drummer and i you know got in and it was pretty surreal you know <laughs> right and did that were like the fees
0: quite big did that give you an impression of you know the disparagement between you know different kinds of bands getting paid different kinds of money for gigs too? well you
1: know the They weren't, I don't, I I didn't really like, I wasn't really in on the money side of things. You know, I had a, I had like a, you know, a set amount of money that I got paid every night and it wasn't huge. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't tiny, but it wasn't like big. And I think like they were still under this threshold of like, you know, bands getting paid well, you know, even though they were this legendary band that people really respected, they just, they were kind of a niche you know they're kind of a niche band, and uh, they didn't really. You know they weren't really on that level yet, where like
0: right. I know, I, yeah, and I'm, I'm so I find myself all asking like these all these questions, and I'm like, oh, I feel like I feel bad about asking about money, but I don't know. It's, oh, it's no, an interesting I, well, thing.
1: Yeah, I just I just didn't really know much about exactly the money situation, so I don't really know. Right.
0: I mean, what what's your experience with booking agents been like? Has Has Tenement had booking agents in the past, and has that been like a? like a job for that booking agent
1: tenements never had booking agents we've gotten approached by a lot of different booking agents especially after predatory headlights came out we got like a lot of a lot of people wanting to manage us or book us and i had a lot of conversations about it and you know in the end it just didn't happen and we've always kind of just been strictly we've always managed ourselves always booked ourselves and uh I don't know. We've always just kind of been that band. My other band Dusk, our friend uh, Brian Gorsinger from the band um, Nightbirds books us. And it's kind of nice having a friend of yours booking, you, you know?
0: It does make me feel like when bands have managers or booking agents there, you're kind of always kind of reaching into the dark, grabbing. Things. Yes. I feel like there's an element, not all of it, but I feel like there is a an element of that.
1: That's always, yeah. It's always been a little confusing to me. Like, um, like you got to... S- you know, once you start getting, once you start hiring people to do work for you, then the money has to come from somewhere. And it's a little confusing about how that money is going to, you know, it's always, it's always been confusing to us. And we've always kind of subscribed to the, uh, the We Jam Econo, uh, yeah mentality of like, if we do it all ourselves, then we save money, you know, <laughs> and we can actually do these things. But
0: hell yeah. Um, I'm glad you said that. Like the We Jam Econo thing is, is again, like that's the, the idea of these chats, you know, to yeah. working day, working by day, playing by night, right. figuring out your shit, wearing funny shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Amos, thank you so much for, for chatting to me. I'm a, like I said, I'm a yeah. big fan of the band yeah. and it's cool. Cause um, I think you, you got like an air of mystery about you. <laughs> I don't know. Is well, that, in, I, don't, I'm, I don't know if that's intentional.
1: <laughs> I think it's something I've uh, kind of, uh, It's unintentional for sure, but, uh, I think I've kind of been like that since I was a child. I've been a little bit of an enigma to people, you
0: know, what have you got coming up in the next couple of months then? I mean, you know, in lieu of shows, are you finding yourself writing more or yeah,
1: you know, um, basically, uh, we've been, we've been working on a record for, uh, Julia from dusk. She's a singer, singer, pianist of dusk. Uh, our labels putting out a solo record of hers and we all play on it. And I, I wrote a few songs for it. And uh, so we've been slowly chipping away at that. And hopefully we can release that soon. Um, and uh, we're, we want to maybe do a vinyl release of the solo album I recorded in quarantine uh, recently. And uh, aside from that, I don't, I don't know. We've been working on, on new dusk material. We have like almost 30 new songs uh, for another you know, to chip away at a new album, and uh you know, I've I've kind of been dabbling with Tenement stuff, but I've been so busy that I don't know. You know, uh, Joe from Don Giovanni Records has been bugging bugging us about doing another Tenement record because uh,
0: Predatory Headlights came out on that label, didn't it?
1: Yeah, 2015.
0: But then the re- the record after that didn't come out on them.
1: Yeah, the record after that was basically a uh, it was a tape that we made for a tour to just so before i think it was before it was for a tour that happened before predatory headlights came out and we we made it just so we could make some money on that tour right, and right. uh it was just a tape and then after you know after the predatory headlights came out we got approached by labels to release it on vinyl so we did
0: so much of the the don giovanni stuff i i really like and they they seem like a label that as a fan you know you sort of I'll listen to anything they put out because i trust them you know
1: yeah it's it's a it's a cool label it's definitely like kind of evolving over time like they, it's it's hard to describe what their niche as far as music is right and uh it's kind of, that's that's cool you know because there's like i don't know that they they put out a new album by a group called morning of black star that's just awesome like kind of r&b mixed with jazz mixed with experimental music and you know it's like stuff like that it's like becoming like their thing you know and that's cool. He just puts out whatever he wants. He's kind of a really like, really nerdy uh, record CD collector guy. That's into like some very kind of I don't know how to explain it, just weird shit, you know. So it's like <laughs> he just wants to put out whatever he likes. It's not like uh, you know, yeah. I don't know.
0: Did you get any? Did you sort of find yourself getting like inspired by them in the way they do things for for Crutch and Memory?
1: I don't know. You know, I think a lot of the inspiration for crutch and memory kind of came from visiting places like Motown when we were on tour, like we would go to, we always do sightseeing for like, you know, we want to see these places where they did these like amazing things, you know, and at Motown you can go into their studio and you can wander around and just look at things. You can touch. I didn't know that. The walls. It's amazing. Yeah. And so it's like, you can, you can yell into the echo chamber and whatever. Um, And so it's like, I've, I've always kind of had a very like, a faint like interest in having a record label or something. Cause I always like supporting artists that I like, but I can't let go of the creative aspect of things. And so like the idea behind doing crutch of memory was that like, you know, we would, we would release these albums, but like we would also base it around like a recording studio where we write and record and design and do all, all you know, we work very in collaboration with the creative aspects of the records and, it's kind of a way of like we're not like at this point in our lives maybe it'll change in the future but we're not doing as much touring and like stuff like that so it's like we still want to keep like very like aggressively creative and yeah so that's kind
0: of and that's so good to hear because you're gonna keep on putting out records which is
1: yeah and hopefully it, you yeah. know hopefully it becomes a bigger thing you know
0: yeah fuck yeah well yeah Amos thank you so much I really appreciate yeah. the chat
1: I appreciate it too man thanks
0: so there it is amos pitch from tenement dusk crutch of memory a general creative dab hand thanks so much for listening to this show to this episode if you do like it pass it on to your mates share it around that would be massively appreciated thank you so much for listening as always here's cox see you tomorrow with tim burgess from the charlatans I've been working on Media Podcast. Mike. me, I've been on the down